the power of the gospel to transform. First Corinthians, sermon number one. I'd love for you to turn there with me. It's right after the book of Romans in your New Testament. First Corinthians chapter one. Now, my, my purpose today is to just give really an overview of the 16 chapters to provide the launching point, the, the runway to, to take this plane off uh, for the next few months as we go through this book together. Now, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is really a story of the church that is stuck in the muck and junk of life. It's not just boots on the ground Christianity. As as Zach was mentioning earlier, this is an incredibly practical book. But I just want to let you know, this is boots stuck in the mud type of book. And we are going to descend into the muck and the junk of this world and this culture and find out that only Christ is the one that can clean us all up, okay? As we see in this book, the Apostle Paul writes and traces out one problem after another with this troubled church, and this is the bride of Christ, everyone. This is the church wrestling with some of the deepest sins that you can possibly wrestle with. Now, take a look around. I'm glad to see all of you here today so you can hear me say this incredibly powerful sentence, West Hills Church is not a perfect church. Is that surprising? As one person said, the minute you joined it, it became imperfect. The minute I became its pastor, it became even more imperfect. Imperfect churches are assembling to meet and worship Jesus Christ everywhere. All over the world imperfect, sin-struggling churches are assembling to meet and to worship Jesus and most importantly, figure out those sin issues and move past them in Christ. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, God willing, every chapter, every verse, as we just walk through it like that, you will look at all of the muck and the sin and the struggle and you will realize that it's even in your own heart and that we're all struggling. Satan is attacking every single one of us, amen? So in the midst of what we're going to talk about, just keep going ahead and looking ahead to where we're going to end up. And say this as we go through this book together, the sovereign power of God is going to get us home. The sovereign power of God is going to get us home. Can you say that with me? The sovereign power of God is going to get us home. Amen? And that's reality. And that's what we're dealing with. And that's what we're going to be walking through. And we want to start, first of all, well, how does it get at home? How does he get us home? How does that all look in the scope of this incredible letter 
Well, let's begin with where it needs to begin and end. And that's where this letter begins and ends. And that is the power of the gospel. It is the best place to start, and that's where Paul starts, and that's where Paul finishes. The power of the gospel, the basic, simple message of Christ and Christ crucified, it's sufficient for everyone, it is sufficient for every issue in this world, in the world, and in the church, and that's Paul's point. Paul has come to Corinth, and it wasn't a major herald event in the history of Corinth that's like, Paul the Apostle has arrived. No. He had just been mocked in Athens by the philosophers in Mars Hill. He left there. He traveled about 50 miles southwest to Corinth. He entered the city quietly. He found a couple of Jewish tent makers there named Priscilla and Aquila and joined them because that was his trade. And he settled in and he began reasoning with the Jewish synagogue people there because that's what he did if there was a synagogue in town. And he began preaching and he, de- he describes his mentality there and you can hear it in the reading that we just heard there in 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. That's Paul. And he's beginning to teach and share the gospel in the Jewish synagogue. And soon they become abusive. And Paul had to go to another place. And it's kind of funny when you think about it. He had to go rent a hall and begin teaching because of the abusiveness of the the Jewish leaders there in Corinth, and frankly, despite Paul's amazing courage, courage unlike anyone else, I think, really in church history, in his perseverance and and his courage, he needed to be held up by God in that preaching ministry. In Acts chapter 18, it, it, it says that. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking and do not be silent for no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people here in this city. And so that's what's going on. And a result of that encouragement, Paul stays there a year and a half teaching them the word of God. And as we see here, his resolution in that ministry was to stick to Christ, to stick to the main point of everything. Him crucified, resurrected, rejecting the world's philosophies, the Greek experts and and thinkers, the philosophers. He was determined to stick to the simple facts of the gospel. And those facts of the gospel are plain. He repeats them again and again. He goes back to it at the end of the book in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. That's the mentality going on here. That's the message of the power of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 again. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are in the process of perishing. But to those who are in the process of being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for full salvation. And you also need something else with the preaching and teaching of the gospel. You know what you need? You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. 
The gospel plus the sovereign application of the Holy Spirit, that combination saves souls every time. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, My message and my preaching were not with wise and pervasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. You know what? When it comes down to it, you need His Word, you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms a sinner into a Christian. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, works through human messengers like me, like others, like yourself when you are sharing the gospel with your family and your friends and your co-workers. The Holy Spirit works through us proclaiming the true message of the gospel one at a time. And then the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit works within that. And only with that sovereign work of the Holy Spirit can can one be convicted of sin and see the greatness of God and be saved. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, he talks to the sinners who have been rescued recently by the gospel. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you and me equally owe our salvation to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus. You know what that shows? There's no jealousy in the Trinity. Spirit of Christ ministering Christ to you. It's pretty cool. Transforming power of the gospel. We're going to find that all throughout the next few weeks and months. It's going to be fun. But we're also going to be reminded quite often of the lostness of this world. Corinth was a polluted city filled with every kind of vice and worldly pleasure. What's interesting, I don't know if you know this, but just so you know, backtrack about 2,000 years ago, lowest accusation you could make against a person in that day was to call a person a Corinthian. So, there you go. Like many people in the United States, when you tell them you're from Los Angeles, they roll their eyes, oh, you sinner. Or you tell them you're from Las Vegas, oh, you're even more of a sinner. It's that kind of mentality that's going on there. People would know what you're talking about. And if you want to know what Corinth was really like, go back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 That was written, most likely, by Paul, or at least his sermons. And while that was going on, he's pretty much, he's in Corinth. And he's looking out the window, and he's all, oh, reprobate mind. And and so you, you see what the culture's like, that they're doing this 
message to in this church being set up in there, and there's sexual immorality everywhere, everyone. This place had a temple, temple prostitutes. They practiced their trade, and it was, it was tied up to their worship of pagan gods and goddesses, and the gospel of Jesus alone, everyone, has the power to break all of those sexual sins. And that they were all going on in Corinth, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, all of those things is going on. It's nothing new under the sun, and Corinth had it all. So this is incredibly relevant to our day. And how do we deal with this? Idolatry. Obviously, if there is a temple full of prostitutes, this whole sensuality thing, there was also an appetite side of that, and I literally mean appetite. The people there wanted to eat meat, and in the days before refrigeration, you needed fresh meat, and so the place to get that fresh meat was at the temple because those were just freshly sacrificed animals. They're offering animal sacrifices to these god and gods and goddesses with the small g, may I add, to you, and you can go and you can get some meat. So you get your fill of meat and you get sexual immorality on top of that. And that's what the temple system was all about. And Paul goes beyond all of that to say, do you understand all the spiritual implications of this? Do you understand the spiritual dimensions of this pagan junk that you guys are all partaking in? And he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20, it says, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with that. I do not want you to participate with demons. So this was icky, junky stuff. Corinth was also a very proud philosophical city with many uh, itinerant teachers promoting all of their different teachings. And unfortunately, this philosophical approach was applied to the gospel. Some of the members of the church were then applying that and fostered division in the church. The congregation was made up of what it says, different schools of thought instead of being united behind the gospel message. And so the first chapter is dealing with the arrogance of those human philosophies. The message of cross is foolishness, once again, to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, that's the power of God. The sinful mind couldn't accept the things of God. Chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Don't you find it so, just irritating sometimes? You try, you know, man, I thought I really was clear with what I believe, and this person is looking at you like, uh? Those things cannot be understood because they have to be spiritually discerned. Only by the power of the gospel, work of the Holy Spirit, can that happen. Remember, that's what we said already. So we have the brokenness of the culture there. And then you have the sinfulness and the brokenness of the local church itself. This is where the rubber hits the road for us. The, the Corinthians were a, were a messed up church. They were a supremely gifted church. 
but it was also full with about every trouble a local church could possibly face. First, there were factions and divisions, as you see there on the screen. I find it interesting, and you should do a study yourself, and I've mentioned this many times. Confirm what I'm talking about. Read yourself. Almost every epistle, you can discern divisions among the people. And it was one of the catalysts for writing many, much of the letters in the New Testament. Problems in the church. People aren't getting along. They're not... Schools of thought, all of that type of stuff. In this case, there's two women here. And these two women get called out by name. Can you imagine them up in heaven? Like, for 2,000 years now, we have been called out by name. Talk about the ultimate, boy, I wish I would have done it different. But they, they couldn't get along, and, and Paul is pleading with them there, and he's like, hey, let's get these people in a room and, and not come out until there's this agreement with one another. And that's in there, and I don't know how long it took, but every single church, everyone, has its trouble, its faction, its divisions, people that don't get along, and Paul had to appeal to them. So that's just the first one. There's false teachers. Now, it's more developed in 2 Corinthians, but there's these false teachers who are totally throwing Paul under the bus. And he has to defend, hey guys, I'm actually an apostle. And what they were doing is that they're drawing the bride of Christ away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ by false teaching. And we see it in chapter 15. They're basically, in this case, they're openly saying, hey guys, there's no resurrection. Woohoo! And that's heresy. It had to be addressed. There were lawsuits going on. Now, I am going to file a lawsuit against Daniel next week, but that's, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, I mean, isn't that weird? You know, there's, there's lawsuits. Jesus said, and this is what's interesting. Jesus says, by, by this we will, all men will know that you are my disciples. How, what was this? If you love one another, nothing speaks love better than a lawsuit. And, and so that was going on. And so they're taking each other in front of court, in front of pagans, very bad. And Paul, Paul's dealing with that. Sexual immorality going on within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's pleading with the, the, the people within the church to be sexually pure. And they, they come out of this gross, immoral culture around them and all of that sexually, which is, this is the big one in our culture today. And and Paul's acknowledging that. He's acknowledging what? He says, and some, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You've been redeemed of that lifestyle. And to understand that, though, chapter 5, he's got to deal with a member of the church who's sleeping with his father's wife, so it's probably his stepmother, 
And, and Paul's like, and you guys think this is okay? The, the pagans don't even do this junk. And so he's got to teach them about church discipline because of that individual. In chapter 6, he's pleading once again with them to not frequent the temple of prostitutes. And he says very clearly, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Ugh. May it never be, he says. So yes, that's going on in the church. Marital problems were going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That'll be an interesting chapter as we walk through that. Paul laying down what a healthy marriage looks like, talking about divorce, talking about remarriage, various issues. It's all in there. We have once again that meat sacrifice to idols moment, but really it's even more than that. It's uh, people flaunting their freedoms and essentially what you got to understand, there's some people that probably have just walked out of this lifestyle, all of this icky junk. They probably have walked out of it, let's say like three weeks and they turn around and people are doing things. They're like, hey, I thought that was bad. And Paul's trying to draw them together and say, hey, you know, you're hurting those that are new believers because they're trying to get out of what you are doing over here. And he's got to teach them a, a kind of community conviction. A community, a church conviction, and a community and a church discipleship process on holiness. And there's like three chapters on that. And that's so important, everyone. You know another thing that was going on? Gender role problems. Oh, wow. Well, here we go. So starting next week, I'm asking for people to buy head coverings. No, I'm not. <laughs> but it's in there. But what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what that's all about. Okay? We're going to figure out what that's all about. But I think there's no generation before us that's been so gender confused than our present generation. And we're going and we need some good teaching on biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and it's in 1 Corinthians, thank goodness. It's there for us. It's awesome. They're having conflicts over the Lord's Supper. I mean, have you, have you caught on that this was just a running race of madness? Conflicts over the Lord's Supper. The Lord attended this Lord's Supper that we take every week here. And, and let me pause there and let me say, we will never say that a church that just takes it once a week or, or I'm sorry, once a month or once a quarter is wrong. That's not what we're about. We feel here as a leadership and as an eldership that it's best to focus everything on the gospel and the centrality of Christ. And the best way to do that is to emulate what they did in the New Testament. And they took the Lord's Supper together every time they were together to remember what the center of this whole thing was all about. 
that's why we do it. But even in this time frame, there were like people running ahead and taking half the bread and running home. There's none left. There were literally people getting drunk on the wine served at the Lord's Supper. All right, woo! And it was so serious. Now, this, this is bad, everyone. It's so serious that God, that, 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 that some of them get killed over it. God's like, zap, you're messing with the Lord's Supper. Others were sick on how they were dealing with the Lord's Supper. This is serious stuff. And I would argue it is stuff that still happens today and God still acts in that way today as well, I believe. Spiritual gift problems. There was an arrogance about, ooh, I am gifted more than you are. A boastfulness. And there are things going on with that in chapters 12 through 14. Three chapters to deal with spiritual gifts. And right in the middle of them is the famous love chapter. And he's teaching them to deal with their gifts in love. And then you have the false teaching on the resurrection that I mentioned earlier. Verse 12 of chapter 15, they're saying there's no resurrection. We're Christians, but we don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul's going, hey, impossible. Christ has been raised from the dead. And all of us are going to be raised from the dead as well. Amen? You can see this thing's going to be very applicable every single week to different stuff going on in all of our lives. And we're also going to see the power of a mature Christian witness woven throughout. The most powerful weapon, everyone, for the gospel is a healthy church. The healthier the local church is, the more powerful the witness is in its community. And Paul has to teach these Corinthians to be witnesses. And he actually, he uses kind of a compare and contrast with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are fools for Christ. But then he kind of says cynically to them, but you, you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we were cursed, we blessed. When we were persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become, according to many in this room, the scum of the earth. But Paul is presenting himself as an example. What is he saying? It's this kind of really other world commitment to Christ that makes a difference in a generation. Now, he does say, I have become all things to all people so that all possible means I might save some. 
But he also says, I'm not like them. Holiness, a distinctiveness, powerful witness. You cannot witness to someone for Christ if you look exactly like a non-Christian and act exactly like someone that's not a believer. It doesn't work because they rightly will say, well, why do I need Jesus if you're like that? That's what I'm like. That makes no sense. And this call to learn what it's going to take to become powerful witnesses for Christ is important for our time. So we're going to learn a lot from 1 Corinthians. Paul links a final exhortation towards laboring in the gospel with his whole teaching on the resurrection. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In the midst of all of the yuckiness, it's encouraging because of the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. This was a supremely gifted church. All of the gifts of the Spirit were functioning. Every gift was at work in that church. They were all there, but they had those pride issues going on as well. And in the middle of Paul's teaching on those spiritual gifts, he gives the most famous chapter. Every time that I do a wedding, everyone asks, can you do 1 Corinthians 13? And I say, of course. But I also want to link it. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries, and if I have all knowledge... In that theological sense, I'm a theological giant. And I have the gift of faith and I can actually move mountains but have not love. I'm nothing. In the midst of all those spiritual gifts, if you don't have God's love operating, you gain nothing. And he defines it beautifully. Love is patient. Love is kind does not envy, doesn't boast, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, love never fails. You see, that's that's the conduct we're supposed to have while we're using those spiritual gifts that we'll talk about while we're ministering to the lost and, and to each other as Christians. You know what? Here's what's interesting about all of that. When we get to heaven... How many, are you, how many of you are looking forward to that day? It'd be kind of fun. Yep. When we get to heaven, all of those spiritual gifts are fulfilled. They're done. Not going to happen. You know, spiritual gift of encouragement. Do you think people are going to need encouragement in heaven? I don't think so. I think they're going to be pretty encouraged. 
Do we need the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues in heaven? Nope. Last time I checked, we're going to be praising God all in one voice all the time. All nations, all tribes, all languages, one. Pretty cool. But you know what will still be there? Love. Because God is love. So love is supreme. It's above everything else. And that is clearly taught in this book. You see, the theme of this letter is how to set right a worldly, carnal, limping across the street church that regards very lightly its attitudes, its errors, its actions, that Paul views, the Apostle Paul views with alarm. I love what one pastor said. The church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. The church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. And that is still very common in churches. And let's zero this in to the life of Scott Julian the life of Daniel, the life, you know, you get the idea here. It's still common in our own lives. Why do I do what I don't want to do, as Paul once said? That struggle is still there. So the relevance of this teaching is lasting because every single day, I need to be following him. And our tagline for this whole series, this whole book, is every single day, I need to be following Jesus in a fallen world. I need to be following Jesus in a fallen world. So my encouragement today is simply this. Thank God for His grace on us, as you will learn next week. Thank God for His grace. Thank God for His care for us that He gives us clear direction to grow in Him, to be in Him every single day, to follow Him in a fallen world. And maybe today you're a person here that is not a Christian. Well, I already told you that the power of the gospel plus the Holy Spirit working in your life is sufficient for salvation. Maybe today's the day because as we sang this morning, this is the day that the Lord has made. 
And maybe today is the day for you to give your life to Christ. To come out of this world and to live for Him. And if that's the case, talk to Daniel afterwards. Talk to Ron afterwards. Talk to myself afterwards. And we will walk you through all of that. And for those of us who are believers, man, following Jesus in the fallen world, is, it's difficult. Because Satan's attacking every time you turn around. And the issues are real. And they're multi-layered. But God's word is supreme and will never fail when you follow his word, his plan. Let's pray together.